My name is Alexis Richards. I'm a second year student here at Wagner, specializing in advocacy and political action, co-director of Vote 2020 and president of Wagner Women. I'm honored to be able to welcome you to tonight's panel discussion featuring several incredible women leaders in the political sphere. This event will be recorded and published as part of the NYU Wagner Reviews podcast series, and I want to take this opportunity to thank both the NYU Wagner Review and Vote 2020 for their partnership on this event. As the conversation goes on, please feel free to utilize the Q&A function in Zoom to ask questions or share comments. We will be monitoring this feed and we'll ask these questions during the Q&A portion of the event. Now, because I know you're certainly not here for me, I'm thrilled to introduce our moderator, Catherine Granger. A widely regarded thought leader on gender, race, and sexuality, Catherine spent several years working in the New York State government and was assistant counsel in civil rights to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, where she was responsible for crafting and implementing several major legislative initiatives, including the Marriage Equality Act. She's a co-founder of Supermajority and now works at Civitas, where she helps clients come up with solutions to disrupt systems and generate transformational change. Lucky for us, she's also an adjunct professor here at Wagner. Catherine, I'll let you take it away so our superstar panelists can introduce themselves and get started. Thank you, Alexis. Uh, I have to say that it is a pleasure to be here this evening and Alexis is in my class. It's also a pleasure to teach you. Um, I ask all of the panelists to join us and just want to, um, there, here they come, one by one. And I uh, just want to also thank, before we get started, uh, Wagner Women for putting this together. Uh, so here's, here's how we're going to do this evening. Um, there are a lot of us, and you're all uh, powerhouses, so we want to hear from all of you. So I'll ask you a series of questions. And then, um, but let's keep it conversational. So if I, if I call on one of you and somebody else is like, but I wanna jump in here, let's do that. And then we'll also have opportunity for Q&A from the audience. Um, I have to say that in a moment like this, when we're seven days out, and I think most of us are filled with sometimes anger, sometimes anxiety, often both at the same time, um, I am trying to be in as many spaces of joy as possible. Um, I did have a little chair dance party before we uh, <laughs> unmuted ourselves and um, being in conversation with you all tonight, I'm, I'm really looking forward to. These are the spaces I like to, to be a part of. All right, um, let's do intros and I'm just gonna ask you all to introduce yourselves. Uh, Kanura, I'll start with you. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you so much for inviting me to be on this panel. I'm so excited to be in conversation with all of the powerful women here, and um, I, I share the, the sentiment of, of, of needing spaces like this in, in times like these, especially the closer we get. Um, it's, a, it's good to be with everyone today. Um, my name is Knor Oja, like, a, like I just said, and um, I am an organizer. I have been organizing on campaigns and with progressive organizations for the last several years. So working with campaigns up and down the ballot um, and working with progressive organizations, primarily at the national level, um, to help people at the grassroots level build power. So um, I've worked on um, ballot measures and presidential campaigns in the primaries, like with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, but now I am uh, 
sort of pivoting from uh, an electoral focus to thinking about how we can really leverage that long-term power building um, and the shaping of the progressive vision that we need for this country to actually um, pass some of the things we need in a new Congress if uh, knocking on wood things go well in a week. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to, to be in community with, uh, with so many progressive organizers and leaders like these um, and, and excited to, to be part of this chat. Wonderful. Uh, welcome. And how about you, Diane? Hi, thanks, Catherine. I'm really, really grateful to be in this space. Thank you all so much for, um, for organizing and um, to just share in, in a little bit of joy at this point in time is, is really uh, soothing to the soul. Um, I'm Diane Morales. I am a first-generation Afro-Latina, Boricua specifically, uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I am also the single mother, the proud single mom of two um, college students myself at the moment. And I'm an educator by training. I have spent my, my career in the community, supporting communities' efforts to engage and activate their power, um, also helping to create alternatives and workarounds to systemic and structural barriers and challenges. And I am now the first Afro-Latina candidate for New York City mayor. So thank you so much for having me. Right on. And Christina. Hi, uh, my name is Christina Reynolds. I am the Vice President of Communications at Emily's List, which is an organization that helps elect pro-choice Democratic women. Um, I have spent um, more years than I care to announce to a bunch of college students, um, uh, a lot, a long time in campaigns, most recently for Hillary Clinton um, and Barack Obama in his 2008 campaign. And I worked in the Obama White House for a while. Um, and I'm so grateful to be here with all of these amazing women. Um, and know it is going to uh, be a balm to the soul. So thank you for having me. Charlotte. Hey folks, it's so good to be here with you all this evening. I just really quickly want to thank Catherine and Alexis and the entire team at Wagner for uh, putting this event together. I think a lot of us needed it, especially given the high levels of stress at the moment, especially with last night. Um, and it's just an incredible honor to be here with so many um, amazing leaders in their fields. Um, I mean, we could be you know, on the panel with the next mayor of New York City, which is just amazing right now. So um, I am a writer and LGBTQ advocate. I recently led the, the human rights campaign in March to work in consulting and write a book and then COVID hit. And so I basically just been working my ass off on wherever campaigns need me to get this across the uh, goal line and make sure we take back the Senate and the White House. It's an honor to be here with you all tonight. Thank you for doing that, Charlotte. And last but not least, Jen. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm Jennifer Bendry. I'm a senior politics reporter at the Huffington Post. I've been with HuffPost for about nine years. I cover, I've covered the White House. I've covered the House and the Senate and campaigns and you name it. I've been here doing it. Uh, I covered the Texas legislature for a while before that. So I've been around politics for a long time from the journalism standpoint. And um, yeah, it's good to be here. Great. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna start out with a question to all of you. Um, so anyone can go in the order you'd like, but this question is directed to all of you. Um, so clearly you're a bunch of powerhouse women. You could be doing whatever you want. Uh, tell the group a little bit why you've chosen a career in the political sphere and really what brought you to this work? 
Maybe we should start with you, Diane, since you're actually running for mayor. <laughs> Why did I have that tingling feeling? <laughs> Um, I, so, you know, as I said in my introduction, I really, I've spent my entire career working in community um, and trying to help low-income, marginalized, traditionally sort of communities that have been historically left behind find either, you know, tap into their power or work around the systemic and structural barriers. On a, on a personal level, I'm also a first-generation woman of color, single mother. And, and so, you know, there's something about the intersection of my lived experiences and my professional experiences that I always, you know, that I thought I wanted to do something with, right? I thought I could bring to bear in some, some way, shape or form to impact and support communities in a different kind of way at a larger scale. Never thought it would be running for office, quite frankly. Um, you know, four years ago, something happened in all of our lives that I think made us start to think and search for something different. And, and it, but even then it was not, that was not what I was thinking. It really wasn't until about a year and a half ago, after 10 years of people sort of telling me that I should run for office, that I started to even entertain the possibility. And I think that I really believe there is something to be said for the idea of those of us on the ground who have been doing activist community organizing work for our, our entire lives, having an ally on the inside um, and something to be said for that inside outside strategy and approach. Um, and I think it's time, I, you know, at that time I didn't realize we'd be living in this moment, uh, but, but I think, you know, everything has sort of added up to point me in the right direction and to make me feel like this is the moment in time for, for us. And this for, for me is bigger than me. And um, it's just, it's, it's the right time. And I think this is an unprecedented opportunity for communities to actually take back, take control, um, not take back, but take control over um, leadership and governance in a, in a new and different kind of way. And I don't need to call on people if you want to go, but I'm going to call on Christina next and then we'll get some flow going. Oh, and you're on mute. I'm on mute. Sorry, you'd think I would know by now. And now I have to follow Diane. That was um, wonderful and inspiring. Um, I was raised by a Marine and a teacher. And so I think public service was always something, um, my sister's a social worker, like that's what we were taught, right? You you find a way to make a difference in your community. And, and I got into campaigns, um, because I love it and they're exciting, but also there's something inherently optimistic about the idea in campaigning and organizing that you can dig in and make a difference. You know, if you don't like the way things are, go change it. Like you can complain about it, sure, but are you doing something about it? And that's why I got drawn into, um, into campaigning. And I'll be honest, um, I had gotten out for a little while. Um, I was working in the private sector and I kind of fell accidentally into Hillary's campaign and, and, it re-energized something in me. And then I was broken like a lot of us at, at the end of, you know, after the election and, and watching what happened and, and my job was really responding to Trump. And so I had a pretty good feeling for what was coming and it was awful. And I just, I felt like, I don't know if I can do that anymore. And then Charlottesville happened and I thought I can't do anything else, right? I have to find a way. Um, I felt a little like I broke it. I got to go buy it, right? Um, I need to go do something. And and Emily's list was there, and it provided me the opportunity to work with these women who were running, who were, 
you know, different than, than so much of what we'd seen um, before. There were women running for the first time. They were standing up. You know, Emily's List went from having a, a record 920 women reach out in one two-year period saying, I'd like to run for office. That was the, the all-time high to in the last two, in the two years after Trump got elected, 44,000 women. I mean, you can, you know, that's exponential growth, right? That's, that's a, a sea change, as we like to say, it's not a wave, it, we are here to stay, right? And so um, it is the great honor of my life now to get to do this and get to work with women and, you know, and, and, and be able to say like every day I am inspired, but also every day I feel like I'm helping make a difference and, and hopefully that's what we're doing and hopefully knock wood, that's what's gonna happen in November and, and moving forward. How about you, Charlotte? What do you, what do you think? Why, yeah, why are wanna, you in all of this? Mess. I wanna take up too much space, I wanted to let other folks talk. Um, if you get me started, I just talk forever. So I have to be careful about that. That's why I'm uh, a moderator. <laughs> yeah, that's <a> good point. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I, I think for many of us, politics is about survival. And to be quite honest, you know, from an early time in my life in childhood, we lived in poverty and I didn't realize things were bad in that moment, or I didn't realize how bad they were. And then you get out into the world, you meet other folks and you realize that families are not supposed to live that way. People generally are not supposed to live that way. You know, you learn about privilege and oppression. You know, you learn about how the fact that you're white gives you certain unearned advantages and being able-bodied gives you certain unearned advantages. And, you know, you go to a church, but other people go to a mosque or a synagogue and they're discriminated against for being a religious minority. Um, and all these things I kind of carried with me uh, until, you know, I went into the military, I got out, I um, worked at the Holocaust Museum for about a year, went back to school and, the campaign, you know, in 2016 is really what crystallized everything for me. You know, I, I had been struggling with how to come out of the closet, um, with also just how to help fight for justice in general. And, you know, I think the best way to do that is through policy, through getting folks, especially from marginalized communities to run for elected office and win, and then, you know, make sure that no one is left behind. So that's been my whole motivation for going into politics. And what motivated you, Kanur? Yeah, I love answering this question um, when students are in the audience because I was really, really lost when I was in college and I would never have predicted that this is the path that I would have ended up taking. So when I was growing up, I had a pretty typical South Asian immigrant household experience. My, um, my dad was an engineer, my mom worked in the home and then eventually um, took part-time jobs at stores or sometimes in the schools. Um, and we had just like a pretty stable, typical experience, I thought for a really long time, but I learned really quickly when I was a teenager um, just how fragile all of that is in this country um, and how little there is to catch you if someone in your family makes a mistake. So right around the financial crisis, a lot of the things that my family was sort of struggling with and that I think a lot of immigrant families kind of sweep under the rug, you know, just to put on the pride and the, and, and the, and the face of the American dream. Um, my, uh, my parents were, were struggling with, uh, with substance abuse issues that eventually led to job loss 
right at the same time as the economy was crashing and I'm a triplet and we were all applying for college at the same time. Just a whole mess of financial disaster um, and I had basically nowhere to go as a teenager. Um, I had um, just a very tense, unhappy household that I wanted to get away from and found myself in college with an insane mountain of debt that I didn't know what to do with. Um, not a lot of emotional support and just really nowhere to go. I showed up at um, an organizing meeting on a whim by myself. I didn't have a huge community on my college campus. I was going to a tech school. I was a chemistry major back then. I think that more than anything underscores how unplanned this journey was of mine. Um, and uh, yeah, I saw a little flyer for a club called Feminist United on my 70% male campus, showed up and found a sense of community that I felt like I'd really been missing and found a sense of purpose. Um, through organizing that, uh, that I wasn't finding in, in the lab or in my chemistry classes or wherever I was, uh, wherever I was um, searching. And so I found, um, so that sense of agency and that community became a guiding force that led me to organizing. And when um, folks that I was in community with saw how energizing um, it was uh, as a force for me, they directed me towards campaigns. Um, the president's re-election was just gearing up in, in Chicago at the time. And so um, I hopped on board, cut my teeth in electoral politics and um, found out that uh, it was something that you could keep doing. And uh, that took me all over the country. And I've kept organizing in, in one shape or another since then. And Jen, thank you, Kamala. You guys have a much more thoughtful path than I had. Uh, just for all the students listening, if you have no idea what you're doing and you're freaking out because you don't have a grand plan, it's okay because you can fall right in and, and just keep moving and you'll get there. Just, just know that's the baseline. You don't have to have a grand plan when you, even when you graduate because uh, I didn't. Uh, but for me, you know, I feel a bit different than some other folks on this panel because I'm a journalist and I'm not an advocate and I never was. But uh, I have covered politics for a very long time. And I grew up in outside of Washington, DC. So I'm very familiar with protests and social fights, like social justice fights, and um, just being uh, socially aware since I was little. I mean, I, my first rally was when I was five, and it was on the mall. And I think it was for like the ERA, which is sad because it's 2020, and they're literally having ERA marches right now, like this past year. Uh, so. Um, but if there's any of you who are interested in, if you're drawn to social justice or politics from the lens of someone who's covering it and you're interested in writing about these kinds of things, um, I can tell you that I have a great job in it and um, it is not an easy path <laughs> to become a, a politics reporter. But um, if you are interested in it, it is extremely rewarding because your job is basically to tell the truth and you talk to people who are very powerful and you ask them questions that they don't want to answer. And oftentimes it involves women's rights. It involves women's bodies. It involves queer people. It involves people of color. All the people who are not basically straight white men with money. It, you're, you're not the top of the agenda for the people in charge by and large. So if you're covering this as a reporter and if this is something you're interested in doing as a reporter, um, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be giving advice, but my, my thoughts to you are uh, just um, just be curious in your life and, and don't be afraid to challenge power. Don't be afraid to ask questions of people in positions of power. And if you want to get into writing uh, in terms of covering some of the issues that the folks on this panel are 
personally involved in, um, just throw yourself into it. Just go to all the events, talk to all these people on the panel about what's important and fight, fight for the things you care about. Um, but think about it through the lens of, of holding people accountable for, for what's right and wrong. Then that, that's a great starting point if you wanna get into political journalism. Now I'm muted. I always think of reporters as um, people who bear witness, which has always been such an important um, element in our in our histories. Uh, and it, 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 it's been erased, right? Like there, historically there have been like mothers, grandmothers, uh, historians that bear witness to what goes on and then talks about it. And I just, it seems more important than ever. So I just wanna underscore uh, Jen, the fact that you are uncovering the facts when they're trying to be buried, um, I think is so critical right now. Thank you for validating my career choice. Yes, I, I support it. Keep doing it please, because we need the truth. Um, so where I wanna go is with this, this idea of being in the room. Um, and I'm not gonna start singing from Hamilton, I promise. But I'm curious, I mean, when I worked in government, I, I spent so much time working on policies that um, people who had the actual lived experience had no business uh, in producing and writing and even testifying around, right? And everyone suddenly thought they're an education expert. And I was like, because you went to school? Um, and it's, anyway, I'm not, I'm gonna get off my soapbox. But I'm curious, um, and I'm directing this question to start out with Kanor and Charlotte uh, to jump in. Of If you could just talk about um, a, a time when you being in the room has made a difference. And I'm thinking of it from a power building perspective. Like we're all here talking about uh, women in politics and building power. Can you talk about a little bit and at some point in your career where you felt like you being in the room has made a difference uh, to the outcome? And so yeah, let's start with that and then we'll take it from there. Um, I'll, I'll just jump right in. Um... I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure if I can if I can point super directly to an instance where me being in the room affected the outcome, especially since I since I work on so many like lefty and progressive efforts and we 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 pick big fights and we lose all the time. So I don't know that I, that it's so uh, that it's super easy to to point to me changing the outcome. But I will say one of the one of the reasons that I think it's so important. Um, to push yourself into the room and to bring others into the room with you is not just because we have um, all kinds of great ideas that, that can change the outcome. Sometimes that's true. For me, I haven't always felt like that's true. But for me, one of the things that I have noticed is, um, you know, in our failure as a movement, um, as a progressive political hemisphere, we have failed really massively um, in investing in women, in people of color, in women of color, um, all of the different intersections um, underneath that. And um, that investment shows up in all kinds of ways. And I think that we spend a lot of time talking about um, you know, correcting these practices when when we're hiring and when we're offering leadership positions and when we're and when we're thinking about decision makers. But I don't think we do as good a job of thinking about um, people who are kind of getting lost in the middle and not getting the opportunities to learn and absorb and get feedback. And I have found that um, the greatest difference that being in the room has made in, in my career has just been the opportunity to learn and understand what the negotiations are that are happening, understanding a little bit more context 
when uh, when a decision is being handed down to me. Um, and then that context, you know, gives me more context than I can give to my team and help them advocate for themselves better and help us come up with strategies to to advocate for our, our team better. Um, and so just like having the the raw information and, and, and being in a space where you can absorb that, I think is is one level um, that that we don't necessarily talk about in, in in the different ways that we've that we've failed to to lift each other up as, as, as women and as a movement. Charlotte, what do you, what would you say to that? That was a great answer, Kenor. Um, I would say that, you know, don't, don't assume that leaders in politics just automatically get it, that they uh, understand implicitly the struggles, especially of marginalized communities, or that they understand, you know, broader struggles that affect all of society. Um, you know, I have been in progressive spaces with leaders everyone in this room knows, and for some reason, they did not understand that in most of the country right now, LGBTQ people are still vulnerable to discrimination in housing and credit and public accommodations. There are no non-discrimination protections. You know, I've been in the room where, you know, a, a leader who is otherwise wonderful just did not get the uh, pervasiveness and hostility of transphobia in the Trump administration. Uh, even though to those of us who work on this, it's cleared on a daily basis, but they just didn't see it. Um, and so if you're not in the room explaining that <clears throat> and illustrating the problems for them, they're not gonna do anything about it uh, because their their bandwidth is so, is so limited, their radar is so small, and it's already just saturated with all the other issues they have to worry about. So it's really important you push yourself into these spaces and inform and educate, of course, by your own agency. I'm not saying anyone should feel obligated to do that, but that is the importance of being in the room to, to push people to get things done. Um, just don't assume that people will automatically get it. Uh, sometimes you watch the news and you're like, why the hell aren't they doing this? And, and honestly, sometimes they just don't know to do that. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's complicated and it's really important that we go into those spaces and, and tell truth to power. Anybody else have anything they want to add to that? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I think this, you know, Ayanna Presley probably said it best when she says those, the people closest to the pain should be closest to the power, right? There is a reason why we need better represent, why our government should look more like us, why we need better representation. But I, I actually wanted to get into a, a, a different room, which is social media. And one thing that I would just urge people if uh, along the lines of Jen, if we're, if we're, able to give some advice here, um, would advise us all to take a look at is like, who are you retweeting? Who are you sharing? Whose voices are you lifting up? Because there's not a study you can find on social media that doesn't show that like women journalists get more abuse than men journalists, right? Women politicians get more abuse than male politicians, right? Diana's nodding aggressively. Um, it's truly awful and it means then sometimes the women will share less or they you know their voices get tamped down even further and the men are lifting each other up and it's something i mean i have to not be able to find a certain comment or a certain story or whatever from a woman reporter before i'll tweet a man like i just am like that's it let's lift thank up you you know i try i mean I, sometimes i fail but um but i try but it's just um I think we need to look at like whose voices are we sharing, whose voices are we prioritizing? 
Um, because for too long, I mean, I got to talk, I'm, I'm probably like most of us, like I watch TV and I'm tired of seeing like in the middle of the Amy Coney Barrett um, judiciary, you know, they go and there's an all white panel. And I would think, oh, when you think of what rights are being ripped away and who is most at, you know, at risk and under threat because of this nomination. And you've got a bunch of like mostly conservative, all white people, like, what are you doing there? You know, don't tell me there aren't, you know, legal experts and, you know, that, that could diversify that panel and lift up different voices and make sure that we're all being heard. And I, I think that's, um, one of the challenges out there, and we all kind of have to demand it, right? And we all have to help lift up those voices and make sure that we see um, that we that we see more voices and help help um, share more voices, because uh, like those rooms matter too. I mean, they matter even more now that we aren't in rooms together. But those rooms matter, you know, too. And so I would just say for all of us, like, take a look. Who are you sharing? Who are you you know who are you talking about? Well, not only was there an all white panel, but then Clarence Thomas swore her in. Last night was a rough night. I, I don't know. <laughs> I just, I literally, I ended the evening sitting on my kitchen floor. I'll just share that. Um, so, but let's go to thinking about how we shift power and get out of this situation that we're currently in. So 2016, a uh, majority of white women did not vote uh, for, uh, Clinton, they did not vote as a constituency of gender, um, but a constituency of race. I'm curious, and I'm going to direct this uh, question towards both Jen and Christina. What, what reason do you think that women, and really I think in this instance it's white women, um, haven't been voting as a, as a constituency? Do you see that changing? And also, you know, tell me if you think it matters. Uh, well, Christina probably has more uh, detailed data on this kind of stuff from her job, but um, I think white women are privileged by and large, not always, but economic, the economic piece here, the socioeconomic piece is huge in, in terms of how you vote. And if you're a, a well-off white woman or you're comfortable and you are um, benefiting from society that is mostly set up for you, not entirely because you're a woman still, but mostly then people that, I forget which one of you said it, but the people who are hurt the most need to be the closest to power, right? Well, you know, affluent white women are not the ones getting hurt the most here. So um, I don't think that white women tend to, I, based on my perspective on things from as a reporter, I, they're not the ones who have more at stake. I mean, it's pretty simple to me. They don't connect with the people who are suffering as much. And if you want to take a step back from that, you can go into race and you can go into um, gender issues and you can go into their socioeconomic and there's all, you can break it all down in lots of ways. But in the end, I think that um, white women stuck with Trump more than maybe people expected because they're pretty comfortable where they are now. Not all, obviously this is a broad statement, but a lot of white women are fine. And um, their husbands, they probably have white husbands. I, I'm making like sweeping generalizations here, but by and large, uh, I, I, I imagine many of them are well off and they, and they also, there's a, a weird, um, a lot of women didn't like Hillary. And then there's that, that's a different dynamic. And I don't, I don't quite get that, that, you know, there was the, the Republican narrative of like, oh, she's a liar. And that really stuck. And people were like, oh, I can't vote for her. She's a liar. My hat, my sister voted for Trump and 
I was like, what? And she voted for Obama. She was one of those people who was an Obama supporter and then a Trump supporter. And I was like, why did you vote for Trump? And she said, oh, because I didn't trust Hillary. She was a liar. And I was, as someone who like covers politics and sees all the things being said about candidates all the time, especially Hillary Clinton, like 10 times a day, every day for months and months, she bought it, <laughs> you know, she bought the line and it wasn't true. So there is, there's another dynamic there of, of women versus, or women holding up other women. And I, I don't know why, I don't know what that is. I, is it like mean girls type stuff? <laughs> like, I don't know. This is where Chris, I will pivot to Christina because she actually knows this well, stuff. And you know, real, real quickly, Christina, before you jump in, I'm, Jen, I'm curious if, in your reporting uh, stance, if you see it changing um, based on what you covered in four years ago to now, like, do you see shifts occurring? And then Christina, I wanna get, in, get you in on this. Well, if I can use my sister as a, um, you know, a test of a broader population of people in her demographic. She's a wealthy white woman who's very comfortable. Um, she wanted to vote for Trump because he looked, he seemed different. He'd be a change. And that was also part of the narrative in 2016. He's not a politician, whatever that means, you know, and so people bought into that. So four years later, I, I not even four years later, my sister had buyer's remorse and was shocked at how bad he was. And I don't know why she was shocked, but she was. Um, so my guess is, and it's not just white women, but I think just people who supported Trump the last time, um, not all of them, but uh, enough of them are, they're not happy with what they supported. They're not happy with what they voted for because look at the state of the country. It's by almost any measure, it is worse off right now, unless you have a lot of, well, not even stock market is, is doing well. So, uh, so personally, from my vantage point, I do think that people are voting differently this time because now he has a track record. So, you know, Trump didn't have a record before. Well, he's got a big old record now and it's, it's not good. All right, Christina, I know you're dying to get uh, in on this. Um, yeah, and I, and I think, um, I mean, I agree with everything that Jen said. And I, listen, there are a thousand reasons why in every election you work for a campaign and there are a thousand reasons why you won and a thousand reasons why you lost. And it's not ever any one thing, right? There, there aren't silver bullets anymore. There's a thousand paper cuts, right? Um, but I think that a piece of it is also um, sexism is real. Our society has taught us that leaders are men. Our society has taught us that presidents are men. There's a reason why we say like her, I don't like the way she sounds when she gives a speech. It's not just because it's Hillary's voice, it's because it's a woman's voice and we're not used to that, right? And so I, that's not to say that everyone who opposed Hillary is sexist because they're certainly not. There are there were legitimate reasons to oppose her. I, I obviously loved her, I supported her, but, um, but there were legitimate reasons to oppose Hillary. But there were also things that, that were ingrained in us not to, um, you know, that, that she didn't fit into what we were, um, what we were thinking. And I would say, has it gotten better? Sure. But I mean, Kunor worked for Elizabeth Warren. She faced some of the same, you know, it was, I mean, you know, my friend Jen Palmieri says, there's something about her I just don't like, right? That that's what we said about Hillary. And oh, I'll vote for a woman when it's Elizabeth Warren running. And now it's, I'll vote for a woman when it's Alexandria running. And, you know, there's, there are some people, and, and I'm not sure I blame them, and I'm not sure, I do think people are becoming a little more aware of this, but in some cases, they're not even aware of the thing that they don't like, that, that, that something about her, um, how tied it is to her gender, but there is something about that. 
Um, and I think a lot of white women, I mean, I used to listen to focus groups where women would say, well, I just don't think my husband would be comfortable with her. And we were like, yeah, but you're the one not voting, right? Like, you know, you're by yourself in that voting booth. Um, and so I think that's also a piece of it. And, um, you know, our strong belief is every woman who runs makes it better for the next one, makes us see like now when you close your eyes and you think of a politician, you think of Elizabeth Warren or Alexandria or Kamala Harris, but you know, it's, we still are not quite used to that. So I do think that's a piece of it. There are, there are a thousand reasons, right? But I think that's a piece of what we saw as well. And Diara, welcome. I, I wanna um, have you introduce yourself in just a second. As you can tell, we're in the thick of it. Does anybody have anything else to add? Because I feel like this is this has been a source of conversation and debate uh, since 2016, but quite frankly, um, since the 1964 Civil Rights Act, <laughs> which is when uh, particularly white women have been voting um, majority for the for race and and not gender. Anything else to add to the end, or you feel like it's covered? Which I want to hear from Diara. I mean, I'll, I'll jump in. I can't help myself. Um, hello, y'all. I'm Wait, so girl, first introduce yourself, and then we'll... <laughs> so, Tiara, like, Tiara, uh, tell us who you are. Uh, just do a quick introduction, and then you can go right into it. Yeah, because, I mean, I think that helps, obviously, color my opinion. But um, so I'm Diara Ballinger. Uh, I'm an attorney. I'm an strategist. I, I started a company called Maestra, um, which does brand strategy now around race and equity race and equity now that everyone knows that there's 400 years of racism in this country since may 25th whoa um but i um also spent 10 years working for hillary clinton um mostly in crisis management and then gladly gave that over to christina on the last campaign and um the only the crisis i had was dealing with clinton friends and family mostly um while i worked on the campaign um but i i mean i think this is something that i still i mean you know, we're in these days leading up, it's like my PTSD is really coming back just because it was so, that loss in 16 was so devastating. And I think we still don't understand why. And, and may, I mean, there, everyone here smarter than me maybe knows like why there isn't money spent on, like just like real analysis on why white women didn't vote for Hillary and why white women vote conservative. Like really, why is that for college educated women? Because I think speaking for Black women, like if Queen Latifah decided to run for president, all the Black women would be like, okay, where do we sign up to volunteer? Like, it's not, a, it's not like an interrogation for us on, oh, we don't like her or da -da. like that's, that's not something that we have. So maybe we need to be studied. I don't know. But I think at the end of the day, we still, we still don't have the data that we need because we spend so little time or not little, but just significantly less time on where, on, on, on where voter apathy or where voter excitement lives with women. So hopefully as we get, you know, hopefully it'll be different in, in, in five days. But um, I think that's something, you know, for, um, for Wagner, for someone to really explore in terms of how we can get more data on women and, and why they vote the way as they do. You came just at the right time uh, and welcome. So uh, sticking with this trend of representation, let's talk about Kamala. Uh, so, when she uh, was chosen, my mother, a seven-year-old Black woman, called me sobbing. And it was amazing how emotional it was. I mean, Kamala was not even her candidate, but suddenly, right, just like Diara, you said, it's like, okay, we're in. Where do we sign up? And so uh, going to 
her debate, which I still sometimes watch it just to get a little get, get a little energy. Uh, going to her debate against Pence, she did something uh, when she kept saying, uh, Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. And I'm curious, um, Diane, I see you shaking your hand, head. I'll start with you. What that, what that moment meant to you um, and also what you th think it means more broadly for women? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you right off. Um, she was claiming space and she was claiming her time and she was, you know, I'm here and you're not going to you know, talk over me, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to make me go away. And, and to me, that was so powerful because there was a moment in my career two and a half years ago, prior to sort of deciding I, I was going to go in this direction. But there was a, a moment where I recognized that I'd spent a lot of time as the CEO of, a, of an anti-poverty organization, making myself small to make other people feel comfortable. Um, because I needed to navigate certain things or because I didn't, you know, want to be seen as the angry black woman or, you know, a, a lot of different sort of challenges that, that I think lead to many of us um, not fully stepping into and claiming the space that we rightfully deserve, right? There's spaces where we're not welcome, spaces that it feels like they were not created for us. Um, and, and I remember in that moment just feeling like I am done with this. And that meant, I knew that that meant that I needed to leave the role that I was in. Um, and so, you know, I, I spent a year then talking about like being done with making myself small to make other people feel comfortable. And in that moment with, with, with um, Kamala, I felt like there was just this sort of national claiming, national sort of putting a stake in the ground and saying, you will not silence me anymore. Um, and to me, it just, it, you know, it was a really, really, powerful moment and I was kind of cheering for her. I wasn't kind of, I was being really loud in my living room cheering for her in that moment because no, you're, you know, no, you're not going to just bulldoze me and I've got something to say and you need to hear it. And this is not your time. This is my time and it's my space. Um, and so I was really, really proud of her in that moment. Um, I, I thought it was like a, it, it felt like a sort of clarion call across the, that echoed across the country uh, in terms of her really sort of standing in her power in a way that I, I genuinely appreciated. So thank you for asking that question. because Well, feel like and now, now I'm gonna dig a little further too because you, you mentioned a few times that for a year, you um, had this epiphany that you were no longer gonna make yourself small. Um, obviously that led to you running for mayor. Uh, tell us uh, what was that moment that, that, that was your wake up of, I'm, I'm not doing it this way anymore. So, I mean, quite frankly, I was, um, I was getting ready to enter a boardroom for a board meeting. Um, and my board was, you know, all but one were, were white folks, white wealthy folks. And I, you know, I had been subjected over the years to a lot of different sort of scenarios. You're making yourself, you know, um, you're flying too close to the sun. Um, you need to think about changing your tone, you know, lots of different sort of things. And, you know, I had often made choices along the way that for the good of the work that I was doing, I preferred to ask for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. Um, and not realizing in, in those instances that I was, I was, you know, putting the work 
you know, I was serving tens of thousands of families in the South Bronx. So I was putting that work above everything else. And I, I think that there was, a, there, there was value in that for a certain period of time, but not recognizing the toll that it was taking on me and, and my spirit and my soul in, in doing that. And I was about to enter the room and there was a, it was, there was a, a tense conversation that I knew I was going to have to engage in. And I was thinking about how I was gonna navigate that right to the to the to the point of like how do you get to what you want without you know making people feel too uncomfortable how do you spin it how do you whatever and i i i recognized as i was walking in there was a physical thing happening in my body and right before i put my hand on the handle i knew i was going to do it for that moment in that conversation but i also knew i am done this is it for me. And, and, you know, it was a June afternoon and, and that was it. And, you know, I, I, I then spent the rest of my time there planning my exit because I knew that it was taking a, the, the kind of toll on me that I was, I was just over it. Um, and I was over it for myself and over it for my daughter and over it for so many other black and brown women who have done that for so long. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it was beautiful. And I, I bet you that every single panelist has a similar story. I, I'd love to, for you to jump in with those. Uh, what, is, what, what was that moment where you're like, you know what, I am done being small? Christina, I feel like you have words on your I lips. mean, I, um, you know, I will say I am, I am the daughter of a Marine who was always like, you're, you know, you speak up, I don't care, you know, like, and, and I have no filter, obviously, I've talked too much tonight, I like, I barrel into things. Um, but I will say, I now work in an organization that's 80% women, and I may be broken for going back to other organizations, because um, it is, a powerful thing to have people sort of try and lift up your comments versus talking over you or I mean I've worked in organizations where the joke was oh now a white man said it now it matters right because the number of times where you would hear um, a woman or a person of color say something and then a few minutes later someone else would repeat it and suddenly it was oh yes I mean my colleagues at the Obama White House used to do this where they would call out like, oh, I agree with what Cecilia said when she said that before. You know, I think that's, um, it, it's, you know, it's something that I think we have, have to have a conscious, uh, you know, willingness to do and also, um, you know, recognize when someone's not being heard to try and lift them up. Connor, do you have an example? Thank you, Christina. I have so many examples. This has been like kind of an unfortunate feature of my career. Um, campaigns have kind of been, campaigns are like kind of notorious for being just like really rough cutthroat spaces. These are like short-term jobs and um, it's, it's very competitive. Um, so I've, I've, I've been through this so many times and um, was, was, was just kind of sorting through them in my head, trying to pick what a, what a good example was. So I'm, I'm just going to pick a recent one where I, um, I feel like I had this like period in my career where I was always some dude's deputy, um, but I was always executing all of the work. It was always like, everything was on my plate, but the person who was talking in the meetings and presenting ideas was always 
was always my boss, who is the dude. Who is saying your words as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, trying to say my words, but yeah. not having not having done the work, not really representing it accurately. So I remember having um, an experience a couple of years ago where I was just like, you know, it's starting this week. I'm just over it. I'm, I'm going to be the one talking in the meetings. The words are going to come from me. I will correct my boss in front of other people um, and just show that I know what I'm talking about when I need to. Um, and that was that was the moment when I started being invited into the rooms and um, it became a little bit easier for me to push my way into, into some of those conversations. Going back to um, one of the earlier questions from, from this conversation. And so I, I think, you know, one of the, one of the cliches that we love to talk about is like being interrupted. And, um, I, I, um, I had so many experiences where I wasn't even invited to speak where I could be interrupted. So, um, asserting myself in, in that way was a, was a big step, um, in, a, in my career. Anybody else have an example that they want to share? I feel like those are the moments that are so um, helpful um, for, for other people to hear. I mean, I will just say that when uh, Kamala started to say that, my instinct, because we've got all of this training in us, was like, oh God, how is that going to, How are, are people going to think that's too aggressive? Like I got, I got nervous. And then I was like, I have to let that go, right? We, we cannot be in our power if we continue to be, abide by these rules that are placed upon us. Um, and in that moment was, she was actually being authentic. And that is something that women candidates so rarely get to do. Um, DR, I saw you unmute. Did you want yeah. to? I mean, I think, I mean, I kind of have cheated here in this, in this conversation because I spent, 10 years of my career working for Hillary Clinton. And so um, I didn't really deal with dudes until 2016. And I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Um, and so I, I didn't, you know, this whole have, you know, this getting shushed or not, you know, feeling like you had a voice or getting uninvited to things. Like those were things that I didn't really experience until 2016, even though I was a political appointee at the State Department where I worked on Benghazi. So just in context of like, you know, it, it just was really interesting to me working on this campaign and um, the just the pettiness that men kind of <laughs> exert into situations I found to be quite funny. Um, but the, the, and for me though, I just would tell, I would tell on them all the time. And Christina probably knows this, like, if you did some shit to me in a meeting or you cut me out of something, I'm telling Hillary, I'm telling, I'm telling, I'm telling. Um, and so I think everyone got to a point that they knew I was gonna get them in trouble. And so they stopped doing it. Um, unfortunately, it was like 20 days left of the campaign or whatever it was. Um, but all that to say, I mean, I think, I think it's just important to, 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 use, to use your voice and whatever that means. And I think even with Kamala and the debate, like to me, to me, I saw her actions as more of the actions of a litigator um, and that she was very smartly trying to have a psychological game happen with him. Um, I sort of wanted her to, to go even farther. Um, and I think I've kind of lost this whole, this whole notion of having to restrain yourself because we saw Hillary do that and win debates and be flawless in debates and still, you know, and, and, and still lose, so to speak, because you know, she wasn't going as hard as, as she wanted to go necessarily. So I don't know. I think we still have a ways to go. And I think, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, 
living history, so to speak, in terms of, you know, Kamala's the first to do what she's doing. So we like for Hillary, you really have, you know, to get to that, you don't really have an example, right? A lot of us and what we're doing in our careers, like we don't have examples, you know, to we, we're, we're like the, the case study. Um, so I think one, that's why the communities and forums like this are so important, but also just like, and maybe because I'll be 40 in January, but I just don't care anymore. I don't have time. I don't care if you're a paying client, you're gonna get it too. Like, this is what I have to say, clearly. So that's that's all I've done. I think that that that, that that's a good, <laughs> I just don't care anymore. Uh, so many of you worked on the Clinton campaign. So curious uh, with that expertise, that's not cheating. That's why you were invited to the panel is, uh, Curious, I feel like there's such a generational shift that I'm seeing in just the four years of how um, Clinton's candidacy allowed the women who ran for office to actually be more of themselves. I mean, and also just being able to see Hillary now be herself also, is a beautiful I'm thing. Sorry, yeah, to jump in, but just like the outfits, right? Like, I feel like completely even, like, Elizabeth Warren, like, just wears like a really chill suit, like, even. The, the like how much time Hillary spent like the clothes deciding what she was gonna wear what her hair was what her makeup was like I think there's even been like an evolution in just the aesthetic. So talk about it. I mean, it, this this feels to me like progress. Uh, it feels to me like you know we we had to have uh, Clinton out there first to 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 pave the way. But I'm curious for you that worked on the campaign, um, what else you're seeing and how it's hitting with you. I know some of you are still in recovery, Christina. Uh, so, and so, jump in and, and say how you feel about it. I think. Um, I mean, I would argue. I had a friend who is a, a, a liberal, wonderful woman who thought that Hillary had planned the grandchildren um, in order to, you know, get some good like attention around the campaign. And I was like, this is the world in which poor Hillary Clinton lives, right? That like, this is what the world thinks. And as DR can tell you, like there's nothing that woman loves more than being a grandmother. And like, that's real, right? That's her, but we assume that it's not. And I think for so many years, we put women candidates in a box, right? You couldn't talk about your emotions. You couldn't get angry. Um, I did the, when, when Kamala started doing the I'm speaking, I was like, yes, but also, oh God, you know? Um, and I think that we've seen some of that break open because of her, because of those women that ran in 2018, who said like, I am, you know, Gina Ortiz Jones in Texas saying like, yes, I am a gay woman um, who served under Don't Ask and I'm running on a, in a border district in Texas, right? Sharice Davids in Kansas who fought back against, you're not from here. I mean, you saw it all around the country of women just unapologetically being themselves in ways that a lot of candidates from years ago weren't allowed to do. And I'm not saying they didn't get smacked for it sometimes um, because they did. And Diane can probably tell you, I suspect you still do, right? But, um, but I do think that, um, again, more of them out there and more women means that the next woman can be more herself and means that we can understand that that adds value rather than being not what we're used to, um, that maybe not what we're used to is good. So I think it's a really powerful thing and a great thing for women in politics. Yeah, go ahead, Diane. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I, I guess I would say that I think it's important for us to acknowledge um, the progress and also we're not there yet. Um, 
you know, we've got a long ways to go. Uh, it's, it's amazing that there's so many women who are stepping up and running, but we're not going to get nearly the proportion of us actually elected into office as we need to, and we should, given, given the volume of women that are stepping up. And all of that, I think, is still entrenched in, in some of the old stuff. I mean, I, I, I posted something, I tweeted something on Sunday about voter suppression um, and the, you know, the shitstorm I got in response to that. Um, which was really interesting because 24 hours later, everybody was talking about it, right? And so I was sort of like, oh, I was just ahead of the curve, right? But, but it was, the reaction to me saying it was different. Um, and, and I also got feedback later that day about a video that I, I, so in response, I posted a video that I entitled a primer on voter suppression. Um, and someone said to me, you can't post angry videos, you know, and, and, you, you read the subtext there, right? And then the follow-up to that was yet. You can't do that yet, right? What is that about? Is that about me being a woman, about me being a woman of color, right? The angry black woman thing that is constantly hovering in the background, no matter how much people say they want us to be able to be authentic, right? It, you know, there's, there are still limits and there, there are still boundaries around how authentic you can be as a black woman. So I just, you know, I want to celebrate all the great things. And also, I think it's important that we not, you know, get go too far down that road because we have a lot of work to do still. Charlotte, you've spent a lot of time in campaign space. Do you have an opinion on where we are now versus four years ago? And also Diane's point about we got a long ways to go still. Yeah, Diane's absolutely right. We do have a long ways to go, especially for trans non-binary representation. Um, and I don't, I don't just mean, um, you know, having folks on campaigns, which is, which is bad enough, right? Because you never see trans people on cable news networks or see them taking the top jobs in presidential campaigns or even big gubernatorial or senatorial campaigns. But I'm talking about just progressive leaders understanding progressive issues, even progressive cisgender women who, you know, some of whom struggle with understanding trans issues in particular. I was at a holiday party a couple of years ago and I was in this room upstairs with a few friends and all of us worked in professional progressive spaces. And uh, this acquaintance of mine, wonderful person, a lawyer, uh, you know, quite progressive, had worked in progressive politics for a long time. Um, she turned the conversation to street harassment and sexual harassment. And, you know, people were talking about that and I was just kind of listening. And she said, you know, Charlotte, it's so good that as a trans woman, you don't have to deal with this. And that came as news to me, because um, you know trans women are you know do face sexual harassment and street harassment and are sexually assaulted. I mean, the previous day I'd been sexually harassed. I think that there is a you know extreme lack of knowledge on trans identities, and um, it's leading to I think this perception that we're past the point where LGBTQ LGBTQ quality still matters, um, which is an incredibly dangerous idea, you know, for the larger LGBTQ movement, but more specifically trans non-binary people, and even more specifically than that, trans non-binary people of color who make up the vast majority of uh, murders, of homelessness, of, uh, you know, certainly scarcity and resources. So across the board, there's this problem. Um, and you know, I, I don't think we're there yet. In fact, we're not even close to being there yet. And so I'm really hoping that 
you know, with this new incoming administration with Biden and Harris, and, and certainly with more representation of trans people in elected office, we'll get closer to that, but we're not there yet. So I have one more question, and then there are uh, questions that are starting to come in from the audience. Uh, so we'll transition to that. Uh, folks in the audience, if you do have questions, start typing them in, because we're going to transition to that in a second. Um, we are in a space where record number of women have been running for office um, over the last four years. A lot of it in response to the crazy making that the Trump election was, but we're, we're, we're seeing women put skin in the game um, like never before. Curious, and this is for anyone who would like to, to jump in and answer the question, um, how we can continue to engage women in politics um, and increase representation. And not only just in elected positions, but just generally. I think Christina, this is, this is, this is your job. So why don't we start with you and then other folks jump in. Sure, hire them, support them, share them. I mean, it's, you know, um, I, we, um, Charlotte, the, 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 your point you made is true and it's so much worse for LGBTQ and particularly trans women. Um, but I've had reporters say like, well, we had the pink wave last cycle, so you guys are good. And like 25, we got to 25%, like, let's be clear. That's not, that's not the representation of the country. That's not like, we're not done. So what I would say is, um, find those women, encourage them to run. My boss, Stephanie Triak, always says, every time I talk to a woman, I tell her, you can say not now, but you can't say not ever, um, thinking about running. Um, and I would say that to um, Jen, I'll leave you out since I know as journalists, you don't like to get into this, but to all the women on the panel and to the women listening, think about it. You know, um, you, should, you should run for something. You should find, you know, think about, or at least support a woman who is. And that's the thing, like we have a lot of, uh, work to do. So stand up for them when they get beaten up, to Diane's point, because we have so much progress to make. Um, you know, share them, lift them up, like, you know, make sure that people know about them, raise money for them. I mean, all of it matters. And, and they don't get the same attention um, as men do. They just don't. Look at Senate races, you know? I mean, we can see it now, you know? There are women running in really tight races, and you hear much more about the men. That's just life. But, you know, it's... Um, it's, it's, it, we can, we can fix it. We can all help change it. All right, you ready to turn to the audience? Diara, jump in and then we'll, we'll, we've got some meaty ones here. Yeah, no, I was gonna quickly jump in because I think one of the, um, one of the things I've learned from 16 and, and been kind of in really working my muscle on is my fundraising muscle. And so I think that is really an important Thing, like to be able to raise money and raise money quickly. And so I think as you're building your network and, 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 you know, supporting women running for office, like if you can find a woman who's good at fundraiser fundraising, like ask her how she does it. Um, and, and learn that as a skill set because it really, I think that really is the, where the rubber hits the road for some of these, for some of these women and, and how well they fare. It's really having, being able to um, raise money. And I'm going to chime in with one yeah, last please. thing and just say like some of this starts to feel like a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing to me because having more women in office will create a better world for women. Presumably we will advocate for issues that are better for women. A world that is better for women will also make it easier for other women to run, right? We don't have, we have a country that expects women to do all of the work of caring for 
um, not only their kids, but often their parents also having to do the housework. Also, it's no surprise, it should be no surprise to anyone that um, all of the work that goes into the caring economy is, is work that um, often comes without benefits and, and often comes without the dignity that is afforded to other kinds of work. So I think just thinking about policymaking and governing in a way that makes a world that is better for women will also make it easier for women to come in and do the work of policymaking and governing and campaigning in the first place. So Kunora, I, I, oh wait, now everybody wants to talk about this question. Charlotte, yes, please. <laughs> I, I was just gonna pop in real quick and say yes, that no, representation is not enough. You know, it, it's not enough to have women running for office or being appointed. We need to have progressive women running for office and being elected. You know, last night we saw that Susan Collins and, well, not Susan Collins, but Murkowski voted against um, uh, or voted for to confirm Barrett um, after saying that she wouldn't. Um, you know, we, we keep getting it. We don't, we shouldn't get into this trap of believing that simply electing a women, women to office uh, leads us to better policies for all women because that is clearly not the case. Barrett is, Barrett is not qualified, quite frankly, for the seat she has. She's not. She spent two years on the federal bench. She's never tried a case. She never tried an appeals case. She never argued before the Supreme Court. Um, you know, she, she should not be, she, she is an unworthy successor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, to put it quite simply. So we need to encourage progressive women and progressive non-binary folks to run for office in order to push these policies. You guys are both dancing around a question um, that somebody in the audience asked. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it in and it is about representation. Um, and so the question is, what are the limits of representation and achieving an equitable social democracy. So what I've heard you say is we need representation, we need progressive representation, but what I understand this question is getting at is, but that might also not be enough in helping us get to a real equitable uh, social democracy. So you all are political animals, so you might be like, I disagree with this question entirely, but I'm curious of what folks think. I'll say one more thing and I'll shut, I'll shut up, I promise. Um, but you know, there's been a lot of talk about the number of trans people getting elected to office, which is amazing. Danica Rome, who's a good friend of mine, getting elected in Virginia. Sarah McBride is about to become the first openly trans state senator in American history. All amazing. But there aren't trans women of color being elected. And it's trans women of color who are receiving the brunt of discrimination and violence in this country. Uh, and so one thing that I think a lot of us have been concerned about is that, yes, a lot of white trans people are getting elected, which is wonderful. It's great. But where is the effort to recruit and train trans and non-binary people of color to run for office and, and you know, fight for policies that address the larger community? Thank you. Anybody else have anything to say about that? I have Jen. something to add. Yes, um, please. So I remember reading a statistic after Obama left office that was something like, 1,000 something seats all across the country flipped. While Obama was president, he was very popular, pushed through some really important policies. But if you looked down ballot and increasingly down ballot in all the states at different levels, it was like, I forget the number, it was astronomically high that like in state legislatures, this many seats flipped to Republican under his presidency. And um, I think that that seems like it's been a real problem for Democrats. I actually don't know if they've done much to remedy that. I'm gonna guess yes in the last few years, but prior to that, it seemed like um, there was no bench. Democrats kind of sucked at building the bench. There weren't people in the, in the queue ready to fill these seats all across the country that had been brought up from the ground up. And um, Sherry Bustos is a Democratic 
Congresswoman, she runs the DCCC for students who might not know about this, forgive me if you do, it's Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. They're the ones who raise money to help House Democrats win. Um, but she runs a program, program called Build the Bench in her district, and it's very local. It's like literally somebody was running for like the like the morgue director or something. I mean, it was like crazy low level races, but they're still races and they're very local. And she personally would pick like 30 people in her community who she came across who seemed smart and and wanted to prop them up. And most of them were women or people of color. And she would literally go up to them and say, have you ever thought about running? And these were people who were like, no. And she was like, well, I see something in you and I think that you should consider it. Please take my build the bench workshop for a day. And so she would bring in random people from her district, give them a workshop for a day, bring in expert people from Emily's list were there, people from the Obama campaign were there, a really good workshop. And by the end of the workshop, there's 30 people set out back into the community. You got some really good training on how to like run for a local office. And it's those people who went run it like, you know, morgue director or um, city council or, you know, really low level stuff, you work your way up so that eventually you have great people in the queue to run for Congress, or you have great people in the queue to run for state legislatures. And it, it seems like that is something that I don't know if it is happening more than it did, but should be happening for women and people of color now more than ever. And I, I don't know where it is now, but it was not good for a long time. It is, um, you're right. We lost over a thousand seats. We have flipped back, I think about 450 of them in state legislatures, which is good news, but obviously that's still a pretty big gap. Um, you know, I know at Emily's List, we've expanded our state and local work, um, I, but there are also a lot of great groups out there. Run for Something is one of them. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of groups that have popped up. There are more local groups. Um, and because it's so important, and I hope that for everyone who has not voted yet, please vote all the way down your ballot, right? Please understand that it matters. Diane's running for mayor. One of the biggest challenges women have is they're not viewed as executive leaders. They can be in, like they can work together in city councils, right? But we don't view them as executive leaders. And that's why mayors are so important. And, you know, think about those things um, because those races are so important, but um, it is it is a challenge and it is something um, it's also like for us, it's a pipeline, right? That's who, when you want the, the party leader to think of the next person, they think of the person who's already held office. So if that's not women, if that's not, you know, people of color, if that's not, um, you know, trans or LGBTQ or, you know, um, uh, if that's not first generation Americans, if that's not any of those things, then they're going to go with who they know. And that's, so um, it is important. And I would urge you, there are local groups all around the country, find them and help them and run with them. <laughs> and that's such an important shift from how like Ron, Rahm Emanuel used to choose candidates, which is literally, they would go to towns and look for the football coach. Um, and I, as you can imagine, that probably didn't yield very diverse candidates. Um, so- um, Can I just jump in? Cause I'm gonna say something a little controversial. Um, please do. I think this has been one of my issues with the Congressional Black Caucus and just love them to death, but they have been there, many of them a very, very, very long time and there's no succession plan, right? And so things that, you know, don't, don't mean anything in the world's policy, but like, for example, I'm black and Mexican. And if I went to Congress and I wanted to be a part of the Congressional Black Caucus and the Hispanic, Hispanic Caucus, I can't because the CBC rules are you have to choose. Like if you are, if you are Latinx, if you are Afro-Latinx, like you have to choose. So things like that, that are so old school and infuriating to me, but like that's, that's who's been in Congress for decades and decades. So I think 
this is also something that like we need to be really thoughtful about and really push the envelope on when it comes to our congressional leadership. Can I just add to that? Um, to DR's point, I mean, I cover Congress and that is absolutely correct. And, and it's the same thing with just all of the House. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is a very amazing speaker. She's extremely effective and good at what she does. She's also like 80s, I don't even, 83, 84 at this point. And she's not going anywhere. And who's who's in line behind her? Steny Hoyer. He's a, a great progressive Democrat, but he's also like 70 something, 80 something white guy. Who's next in line? James Clyburn, black man, great. But he's also like, how old is he now? Like 78, 79. So there's no heir apparent. And that's the problem. Like these same people have been in charge for decades and they're not leaving. And it's always awkward as a reporter when you're like, hey, Speaker Pelosi, I'm actually interviewing her on Friday. I'm trying to think of a way of how to ask her when she's, she's going to retire. <laughs> yes, because she said she said she was not going to run for speaker after she she phrased herself as a, a transition speaker for this current Congress, because there's a lot of agitating among younger women and people of color who want new leadership. She said in the last Congress, she was only going to be a transition speaker, but she's already said she's going to run for speaker again in, in 2020, 2021. So the question is, if you're, if you're interested in having a broad, diverse, younger mix of people in Congress, what do you do when the people who are in charge don't leave? I mean, it's the same in the Senate. It's the same people and they're very good at what they do, but it doesn't there's no heir apparent. If there's nobody obviously in line to take the mantle when this generation leaves, and so that's that's always extremely awkward. And you know, as a from an uh, as objectively as I can look at this, it's just not smart politically for them. They need to have somebody who's exciting and ready to take over, and they don't. The same the same critique has been talked about with Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well. Um, I mean, yes, Charlotte. I was going to ask, and I think Jen is absolutely right, that there needs to be more diversity of age in congressional leadership. I mean, that is just, that is a clear, smart critique, hands down. But I do wonder, it seems like sometimes the burden falls on older women um, in elected office to increase uh, age diversity. And it seems like that, I, I worry sometimes we get into like an ageist space with these conversations. And that is not at all what Jen's doing, but it's like a slope, right, where we start arguing that older people in general or people over a certain age shouldn't run for elected office. Um, and I guess I I guess I just worry about it. I'm just throwing that out there for I, the general conversation. Charlotte, this is, so in 2007, when I was working on Hillary's first presidential and I was a new lawyer, but my job was basically to carry Sheila Jackson's leaves, lease her scars. Like that was my job. That was a job for a, a lawyer of color. Um, and so I remember like being at like a lunch, it was, there was like a crew of like, like newly black women lawyers. One was like on loan from national partnerships. Like we were just this mean crew for Hillary. And we were staffing these congressional members. And I think it was like Stephanie Tubbs Jones, God bless her soul, SJL, but we were having a lunch and they were so impressed with us. They were like, Ooh, we really should think about who comes next. And this was in, 2007. So I think it's not it's not a critique on their leadership or their capabilities. It's a critique on, come on, y'all. Like, <laughs> we, we've got to figure out a way to cultivate young folks. It's like, I'm sure it's what all, like, we probably spend at least 40% of our time mentoring somebody, guiding somebody, getting on a phone call, getting on these Zoom coffees now. So I just, 
I just feel like that that's the critique on that is that you just have to invest in the in the next generation. Well, we actually have a we have a question on it um, around and Kenora, I want you to jump in. And one of the questions is around um, also white women of how uh, white women can make sure uh, not to take up too much space um, as we build political power. I think we can talk about this from any sort of from a generational shift. Um, and also um, one of the questions from the audience is as, as a white woman um, wanting to be supportive of diversity and inclusion and building power and also making sure that you know, space isn't taken um, for these positions as we build a more reflective democracy. Nora, you want to answer? Go where you were going, and then also jump in on that question. Yeah, and I I think that that question is related in in some ways to the last one about like what like what are we talking about when we say representation here, and like what when it, when is representation enough? What kind of representation is enough? I think you know I could give you a really superficial answer to that question and just say like be quiet, step aside, and give and and find a woman of color to 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 take your speaking time or do something else. That could also be just like a really superficial harmful answer, um, maybe. Maybe not everybody is ready. Maybe not everybody wants to. Also, maybe not everybody has like the same, um, I don't know, this, the, the same interest. I, I, I think that like sometimes we, we move ourselves into these tokenizing conversations that are just like really superficial. Um, we, we talk about representation like almost as if we are checking boxes and instead of talking about like representing interests and representing values. And I, and I don't even mean in like a poll tested, like representing like what the majority of XYZ constituency is asking for. I think, um, yeah, so I think like what I'm really saying is to just like approach with caution when we, when, when we are, are overly simplistic about representation. Cause I think we have seen a lot of, um, you know, conservatives of color lifted up in the last administration. I think we've seen a lot of scary examples of um, of people taking this the the wrong way and um, and 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 really um, sort of making a, a caricature. I think of what um, of what was intended when people are starting conversations about representation. So I think it speaks to what Charlotte was talking about earlier when it comes to like like actually what we need is progressive women and we need progressive women of color and we need people who are actually like representing these communities um, and, and, and understand um, why they've been marginalized and pushed to the side and, and, and can speak from that perspective. So we have five minutes left, which that went quickly. Uh, Diane, there is a, a question specifically for you and I, I wanna get to it. Also, how many lawyers are on the panel? Is DR the only one? All right, a question specifically for you and then we're gonna do a wrap. Uh, so, uh, Diane, the question is, as a first-generation Afro-Latinx woman, what suggestions do you have for engaging family members in political dialogue? Five minutes? <laughs> Actually, um, two. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, you know, this is, it's, it, I'm not going to say that it's an easy conversation, I think, you know, particularly across generations. I actually am living in a in a three generation household right now. I'm the I'm the I'm the middle part of the sandwich. I've got my parents and my kids. Um, and you know we're, we my 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 parents are old school. They both you know migrated here from Puerto Rico. I mean my dad used to go to school like barefoot on the days that he went to school, literally. 
um, and, and literally at the beginning of the Trump administration had some choice things to say about the immigration stuff that was happening. And I cannot tell you how difficult that was for me. Um, but we, you know, I have found myself, you know, taking lots of deep breaths um, and trying to be really um, patient and um, explaining and also understanding different points where like, okay, I can't have this conversation right now because I need to sort of preserve myself. Um, but, you know, th that being said, it's, it's been four years and, and my parents are going with me on Thursday or rather I'm taking my parents to the polls on Thursday and they are voting for Harris and Biden on the working family party, working families party line. Um, and so, you know, my point is it, there, there has been progress. Um, the, there's no sort of silver bullet to this. Um, I, you know, I think there are, there are also family members that I won't have these conversations with that, that I'm like done with, right? It's over. Um, and so making those decisions, right? The weighing the sort of relationship versus um, the relationship and the patience in having these conversations over time versus just like, I'm done with you. Um, you, you just don't get it and I'm not gonna move you. And so I can't have you in my life, right? Or whatever, you know, that's one extreme to the other. Um, but there have been a lot of difficult, challenging conversations and a lot of deep breaths and a lot of pauses and a lot of revisiting and, you know, it, and you just have to make a decision about what something, what the relationship means to you and how much you want to invest in it in that, in that way and, and balance that, I think, with some level of, of self-care. Um, and it's hard in, 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 I think, in, in Black and Latino cultures because family is such a, you know, big thing, um, but I, I think sometimes you have to make the call. Uh, it is, it's not an easy process by any means. Thank you. And Diara, I'm gonna actually skip our, the last question because it was, do you need a law degree to work in policy or politics? This panel um, proves that you do not. Um, all right, we are seven days away from the election. Uh, rapid fire, starting with you, Kanor. Uh, what's on your mind? Uh, as we as we get to this one week mark to the election, um, what's on my mind is um, just being ready for what happens in in seven days and being ready to um, to push for a strong governing agenda if we are successful. Alexis, oh, not Alexis, Jen. <laughs> Alexis is next. <laughs> uh, I I am watching to see how much of a fight Trump is going to put up if he loses. And we won't know, I'm guessing we won't know the results for a while. And I'm, I'm uneasy about um, what will happen after election day if, if Trump's ballots at that time show him ahead, but there are so many more uncounted ballots and what he will do to try to make it sound like he won and it's over. So yeah, I'm a little on edge about that. If that happens, can we just all get back on the phone together so we can drink <laughs> and feel better? <laughs> I need it. Um, Charlotte. Um, we have to reform and expand the federal judiciary and undo all the destruction that's been done to it. And we can't do that if we don't win back the Senate. It's not enough for Trump to be defeated. We have to win back the Senate too in order to undo all the destruction that's been done. Great. Diara. Um, what Charlotte said, obviously. Um, and just take care of yourselves, everyone. I mean, I think we're feeling the anxiousness and the anxiety of, of, of what's to come. And I think we, yeah, we aren't gonna know on November 3rd. So I think just do what you can to take care of yourselves. 
so that you can continue to do um, all the things that you're doing to, to get us there. And Christina. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be the, the very electoral person here. In 2017, control of the Virginia legislature literally came down to one seat where there was a tie vote. No joke, exact tie, and they drew a name out of a hat and they drew the Republican's name. So if you think that your vote doesn't matter, you are wrong. And if you think that that one person that you convince to do something doesn't matter, it probably does. And so I would say, if you care about this election, just make sure you wake up on November, whatever day it is, and feel okay about what you did. Um, and there's, you know, everything, everything counts. So, yeah, yeah. And Diane. Um, I, you know, uh, the anxiety is, is real. Um, I think about um, ensuring the integrity of, of, the, of the election, that the ballots get counted accurately and re reflected accurately. I think about um, ensuring that, uh, that we have, that you know, whatever needs to be in place to ensure a, tr a peaceful transition of power um, happens. And I'm obviously thinking about a transition of power, which is, I think is really important. Um, and I think about, you know, what we need to do once, once we cross those, you know, get over those hurdles, which is, you know, I think about expanding SCOTUS. I think about, you know, what Charlotte mentioned in terms of the, the Senate. And I think about, um, getting rid of the electorate. Those are the things that, you know, like if I had a wish list of things that I, I could execute on, those would be all of the things, um, somewhat in that order. I want to thank all of you wonderful women for this conversation. I want to invite back Alexis, who's going to close it out. I got excited earlier about inviting you back. Um, also, thank you everybody for the questions that you asked. We have a list of, of many more to continue the conversation at, a, at another time. Alexis, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Catherine. And thank you to all of our panelists for joining us here tonight. I think I speak for all of us in attendance and all of Wagner Women when I say this was exactly the conversation we needed tonight. It was so fantastic to hear from all of you. Um, for the last few weeks, I've been saying my dream panel event is happening, it's coming and it happened today. I feel so much more energized and excited, especially I know as uh, my classmates and I, we are all graduate students working in pub uh, studying public service, looking to enter the public sector, some of us in the next six months. And right now that can feel really daunting, but having this conversation really made us, a lot of us feel really great and secure in what we're looking to do in the future. Um, so I will just say for anyone, if you had questions that didn't get answered, I'm gonna highly recommend following all of these wonderful women on Twitter, I do. Um, it's a great time <laughs> and uh, feel free to get your questions answered there. And as far as what we're doing in the next seven days, uh, Vote 2020 is a co-sponsor co of this event. I'm also a co-director of Vote 2020. Um, NYU's voter turnout numbers in 2016 were truly abysmal. We're working to fix that. So I'm gonna drop our pledge to vote and take an active role in election in the election in the chat. A Vote 2020 member will meet with you and get you set up with a volunteer opportunity or organization for the next seven days. So please make sure to do that. Um, and on that note, thank you so much, everyone, and have a great night. Gaslighter, denier, doing anything to get your ass farther. Gaslighter, big timer, repeating all of the mistakes of your father. We moved to California and we followed your dreams. I believe. 
do us part, but you lie. 